Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. That's me, Melissa Canchola, your host of Truth Be Told Radio. And I'm going to get started with the lesson today is The Debased Mind by Vody Buckham here on Trippy Toll Radio. Father, thank you for your amazing love. And love that is amazing, not just in theory, but in practice. As Christ, the God-man, laid down his life on behalf of sinners whom you sent him to redeem for your glory, your honor, and your name's sake. What a privilege it is to be numbered among those. Father, as we continue today to worship you, as we have lifted songs to proclaim what we know and believe to be true about you. And now come to the moment where we open your word to break the bread of life. We ask that you would speak for your servants indeed are listening and we desire to hear what you have to say. More importantly, we desire to heed what it is that you have to say. Make us willing hearers and doers of your word, we pray. In Christ's name, and for his sake, amen. Well, we've come to the end of Romans chapter 1. We have been here for a while and could probably stay here a while longer. But... We've come to the last paragraph here in Romans chapter 1, dealing with this issue of sin, and particularly dealing with this issue of sin and general revelation. We're looking at the fact that the entire Gentile world is under condemnation because of sin, because of unrighteousness, because of wickedness, because of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And we've seen this, this this digression, really, of sin in the first paragraph introducing this idea of sin as a result of man suppressing the truth. In that second paragraph, beginning in verse 24, we see the result of man's suppression of the truth and his idolatry and his promiscuity. That next paragraph, beginning there in Verse 26, we saw it really go into downright degradation in the practice of homosexuality. And now we get the full force of man's sin as it manifests itself and what it looks like in the context of man's experience in light of this sin being given full reign. And so, 
you'll begin with me, beginning at verse 28. We'll read the third of these therefore clauses, the first one in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And now in 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then here's the summary statement. Verse 32. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. A couple of questions, three in particular. One question is, what gives rise to sin? It's very important that we answer that question as we finish Romans chapter 1. What gives rise to sin? Now, if we're not careful, we read here in Romans chapter 1 and forget the theological foundation upon which the book of Romans is built, and we would believe that what gives rise to sin is just man's sort of experience of unrighteousness that leads God to respond to that unrighteousness as man falls deeper and deeper into his sin. But you have to remember that sin is a result of the fall. That first and foremost, what gives rise to sin is the sin nature that infects and affects every human being. As our confession of faith reads, from this original corruption or the original sin, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. In other words, in plain English, those actual sins that we commit come forth from our sin nature. They come forth from the fact that we are born in sin, that all men have a sin nature original sin. So what's happening here in Romans chapter 1 is not that man comes to the picture innocent and neutral, but in fact, man comes inclined toward all evil, desiring all evil, which is why he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. In other words, sin proceeds first and foremost from original sin. And it's because of that original sin that we actuate that sin, that we act upon what is in us. That's where it begins. But sin is, that's not the only thing that gives rise to sin. What also gives rise to sin is actual sin, the sin we commit. So it's one thing for us to be born with a sin nature. It's another thing for us to act on that sin nature. 
And what we've seen in Romans chapter 1 is that as we act on that sin nature, it gives rise to more sin, to further degradation. For example, look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So that's what man did. And as a result of that, we have verse 24. Therefore, because of what? Because of the sin that man gladly walked in in spite of general revelation. And then we see in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 26, for this reason. For what reason? Because of what just happened in the last verse. And then we read in verses 26 and 27 about the degradation of homosexuality, and it's only then that we have verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, actual sin gives rise to sin. Not just our sin nature, but acting upon our sin nature drives us deeper into sin. That's why we're told in chapter 6 not to, not to offer our members to sin because it actually drives us deeper into sin. It's not just what's there in our sin nature. The actual practices in which we participate. You notice that about your own life? That there are certain things in your life that get a hold of you. And all of a sudden, when you surrender, when you give in, when you actually appease those desires, it becomes easier and easier and easier to do it again and again and again. And it becomes harder and harder, first of all, to acknowledge it as sin anymore as we become callous to it. And secondly, more difficult to walk away from it as a result of the practicing of that Here's what I want you to see in our paragraph. There's a couple of things that you have to grasp. And I know we try to stay away from uh, Greek grammar lessons and things of that nature. But it's very important in this last paragraph that you understand what's happening linguistically. First thing you need to see is that in verse 28, there's a play on words, actually. The, the verb there, you would think that the verb there is to acknowledge, but that's actually not the verb. In the Greek, the verb is did not see fit. That's, what's trans that, that's the verb, the way the verb is translated. So since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, or as some translations say, since they did not consider the acknowledgement of God to be appropriate. So there's a play on words because what God does is gives them up to a debased mind. That word for debased correlates to something that is unfit. In other words, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them a mind that was not fit for anything else. That's the play on words. The other thing you need to understand is this, that there's different tenses in the verbs. The first thing we see is that these first two verbs are in the aorist tense. Now, the aorist tense, you just need to understand, that's just an, an action that takes place. It's a simple action. 
but beyond the aorist tense is also the present tense, which in the Greek, the present tense is linear, continuous action. Now, again, I, I know you don't come here for Greek grammar lessons, but this is important when we're talking about present action and continuous action versus simple action. There is also here in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That is in the perfect tense, which is an action that took place in the past that is having lasting impact in the present. Now, I'll explain all of those, I promise you, but they are extremely important. So, look at verse 28. Since they, simple action, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, simple action, gave them up to a debased mind. And it's the debased mind that led them to this present tense verb, to do what ought not, and then there's another present tense verb, to be done, to do ongoing action. Here's what you need to understand. The text is not saying that because of what they considered in their mind, God led them to a place where one time they did something bad. Present tense, ongoing action, continual action, perpetual action. This is a lifestyle of sin. That's going to be very important as we go on. But understand, this is a lifestyle of sin. It is a character of sin. It is the defining aspect of the individual's life. That's what that tense and that verb means. Because of that, they were filled. Perfect tense. An action that happened in the past that has lasting impact. By the way, what comes after that is a list of nouns and adjectives. There's no verbs in this sin list. Isn't that amazing? In other words, this list is not the list of things that people do. It's the list of things that people are that leads them to do what they do. Let me say that again. This list that we find at the end of Romans chapter 1, which is repeated in part in a number of different places throughout the New Testament, it's not a list of verbs. It's not a list of things that people do. It's a list of nouns and adjectives that describe who people are. You see, our actions come out of who we are. Now notice these nouns and adverbs. They were filled with all manner of, there's a list of four, a list of five, and a list of twelve. All manner of unrighteousness. By the way, that word unrighteousness is sort of an overarching term, and it's been repeated several times. The root word for unrighteousness has been repeated several times here in Romans chapter 1. If you remember, we started by talking about righteousness as it relates to the gospel. That word righteousness is an important word throughout the book of Romans, because that's what the doctrine of justification is all about, being declared righteous before God. So here we see that these individuals... Because of what they were filled with, perfect tense, a past action that has lasting impact, the first thing they're characterized by is that they are unrighteous. They are evil. They are covetous. And they are malicious. They're filled with that. That's who they are. Next, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
maliciousness. There's your list of five. And now your list of 12. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. There's the list. That's what these people are. By the way, that's what all people are. Amen? That's what all people are. And the things that we do in our lives come forth from the character that we possess. And this is merely a definition of the character that we possess. Now, this list, number one, is not exhaustive. Paul was not trying to give us a list of all of the sinful characters that exist within the context of the human experience. It's not exhaustive. But secondly, it is representative. You go through this list, and it covers pretty much everything that we deal with. Amen? And we can take the time and bear down here and focus on this list and the individual things found in this list, but the fact of the matter is this list is not about the individual things found therein. This is an overarching picture of sinful character that is a result of the callousness in man's heart. That's what this list is. It's the big picture, and it's the culmination. You start with denying that God is God. You start with breaking the first commandment and worshiping other gods and the creature rather than the creator. That leads to man being enthroned as the ruler of his own universe, and that leads to practices that are designed to satisfy man, but in essence do nothing more than destroy him. Of what that destruction looks like. Remember, we started with the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. Remember we talked about that term, the wrath of God being an eschatological term in the sense that ultimately the wrath of God is going to come and God is going to deal with sin in an ultimate sense. But there is also a temporal sense in which the wrath of God, we're actually seeing the wrath of God right here and right now. Here's what you need to know. This kind of character is representative of the wrath of God in our midst. Men living like this is evidence of the wrath of God in our midst. Men living in ways that they ought not live, doing things that ought not to be done, is evidence of the wrath of God. It's evidence of God saying, I am going to punish sin in an ultimate and eschatological sense. But in the meantime, what you will experience is the fruit of your sin, the fruit of your desires, and the wrath of God poured out as men do to themselves and to one another what their sinful character desperately wants. And it gets worse. Verse 32, though they know the decree, that they know God's decree, excuse me, that those who practice such things deserve to die. There needs to be some explanation here. They know God's decree that those who practice some such things deserve to die. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll make a leap here that's unwarranted. We'll make a leap from general revelation to special revelation. Because it says God's decree. 
So if it's God's decree, it must be what God has said. It must be what is written. We must have gone now into the law that has been revealed. No, actually, he's saying they know God's decree, and the word that he uses there in the Greek is epinosis. And epinosis is something that you know as a result of objective observation. Well, now, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that Paul's arguing that human beings ought to be able to look at nature, not the Bible, but just look at nature, and be able to tell by looking at nature that people who practice these kinds of things deserve to die? That's exactly what Paul's saying. And it's exactly the case. Let me give you a few examples of why it's the case. Number one, you can go to cultures that have never seen the Bible before, and they have the death penalty for a lot of these practices. Why? General revelation. That's why. That's why. We know that these things are wrong, but we need to back up even further. Death itself is part of general revelation. Let me say that again. Death itself part of God's general revelation. Death preaches perhaps louder than any other sermon that is a non-biblical sermon. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun rises and it preaches a sermon. And men can hear the sunrise sermon. The sun sets and the stars come out and they preach the glory of God sermon. The seasons change and they preach the changing of seasons sermon. But none of those sermons has the impact of a cold, dead body. None of those sermons impact of the realization that life ends for all of us. The sun and the moon and the stars do not and cannot communicate to the human being the way the loss of life communicates to the human being. When a human being dies, it communicates to the world around us. Number one, this is not all that there is. Number two, you can't avoid this. And number three, there's something that God has put on the inside of you that says, you probably need to get ready for what comes after. Amen. And you don't need a Bible for death to communicate that to you. Here's the other thing that death communicates. Death communicates that things aren't all right. There's something wrong with the world. Death communicates that loud and clear. There's something wrong with the world. People die. Here's the other thing death communicates. And for a moment here, for those of us who are believers, for those of us who are followers of Christ, for a moment, for a moment, we've got to step out of our, our, of our, of our Christianity for a moment. And by that, I don't mean that we need to act like unsaved people. I mean that for a moment we need to think like unsaved people for just a moment. Because there's some of us who we're not used to doing that and we don't want to do that. And we don't. Use, but listen, we need to do that. Even unsaved people. If you're a lost person, you don't know the Lord. You don't know anything about God. You don't know anything about Christianity. You don't know anything about the Bible. Here's what you would experience. And I don't care if you're the worst person imaginable. 
In fact, let's put this in a context. Let's go to prison for a moment. Now we're in prison, and we're in prison amongst a, a bunch of prisoners that don't know God. Hardened, callous prisoners. Hardened, callous prisoners who don't know God, who've done horrible things to people. And yet, there are some people who come into that prison for crimes that even prisoners believe are unthinkable. And they're treated differently. Why? General revelation. Here's another example. You and I don't know God, and two people die. One of those people who dies is a young child or a young mother. Another person who dies is a man whose life was characterized by this kind of sin. Now, if we're lost people, I know, then you know how you're supposed to answer. That's not what I'm talking about right now. How do lost people look at that? Lost people look at that and say, that person deserves to die. That person didn't. A lost person knows that. Why? Because general revelation shows us that sin deserves death. You don't even have to have the Bible for that. So this statement here in verse 32 is not Paul saying that, you know, they know the decree of God because somebody brought them a Bible. No, without a Bible. You don't need a Bible to be able to observe nature, to be able to observe what God has revealed and realize that there are certain things that are out of bounds. See, here's what's awful though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, that's bad enough. It's bad enough to look around through general revelation and to realize that certain things are awful and they ought not to be done, and you go ahead and you do them anyway. But there's a step further. They give approval to those who practice them. Here's what you need to know. All those verbs there, though they know that verb is actually in the aorist sense. They know. Simple action. But practice both times, present tense, do, present tense, give approval, present tense. Remember what I told you about present tense? It is a linear, continuous action. These people have a lifestyle that approves of sin, a lifestyle that engages in sin. They're characterized by this. Listen to what Calvin says here. Though this passage is variously explained, yet the following appears to me, and I love this word, the correctest interpretation. That men left nothing undone for the purpose of giving unbridled liberty to their sinful propensities. For having taken away all distinction between good and evil, they approved in themselves and in others those things which they knew displeased God and would be condemned by his righteous judgment. For it is the summit of all evils when the sinner is so void of shame that he is pleased with his own vices and will not bear them to be reproved and also cherishes them in others by his consent and approbation. 
is the lowest of the low. But here's the question. What restrains sin? We see what gives rise to sin. But the question that we have to ask is what restrains sin? Not because it's really spoken of here in the text, but because it's the obvious question raised when we read the text. Because you look at this and you say, okay, fine. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and and uh, they're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and unrighteousness and their gossips and slanders, all these sorts of things. And here's what you say to yourself. I don't know anybody that bad. Or it's just me. You say to yourself, I don't know anybody that bad. Paul's exaggerated. I mean, people aren't really that bad. Let me say two things. Number one, the reason you say that is because you see the outside. Amen. The reason you say that is because you see the outside. If you saw the inside, you would have a different response. Here's the second thing. You say that because you see the results of God's common grace. Remember what we talked about on last week. Total depravity doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be. Man's not as bad as he could be. So here's the question. What restrains sin? And this is important. Why is it that we don't look at people usually and see all of these things being manifested the way they appear here in this text? Number one, self-interest restrains sin. So the sinful man, the natural man, has all of this in his character, and yet he does not act upon all of this, and one of the main reasons he doesn't is because of his own self-interest. I don't act on all of these things because when I act on these things, there's usually a consequence. Amen? And I don't want you to do that stuff to me, so I won't do that stuff to you. Why? Because I'm a good person? No. It's pure self-interest. There's nothing good in the natural man, but there is self-interest. So because of self-interest, sin is restrained. Because I don't want you to act as bad as I am on the inside, my sin is restrained. Secondly, societal interest. Societal interest. All societies have laws. They're not written codes of conduct. All societies have laws. Why do societies have laws? Because they know that this stuff is in them and it needs to be restrained. That's why societies have laws, to restrain evil men. Praise God for his common grace and societal laws. Amen? It restrains evil. It restrains evil. There's a third thing that restrains evil. This one people don't like so much. Christian culture restrains evil. Christian culture restrains evil. If you don't believe that, you haven't traveled the world much. If you've traveled the world much, you know the difference between cultures where Christianity has had an influence and cultures where it has not. Christian culture restrains evil. Does that mean Christian cultures are perfect? No, absolutely not. I didn't say they eradicate evil. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) 
I said they restrain evil. So here's what happens. People have self-interest. We have societal interests. But we also have Christian cultures. So what happens is culture informed by Christian truth makes laws for societal interests that are informed not just by general revelation but also by special revelation, and that has a powerful impact on the people in that society. Does it save them? No, it doesn't. But it restrains them. That's the question. The question is what restrains sin. Why is this so significant? Here's why it's so significant. Because when you look at a pre-Christian culture or a culture that's never heard the gospel, all you have is self-interest and societal interest without the word of God, and you can only go so far, and it is still an evil culture. And yet, here's what happens inevitably and everywhere in the world. You have Christian culture that arises, and it transforms a society, and eventually they go from a pre-Christian culture to a Christian culture, and then they scream for a post-Christian culture. And that's where we are. Here's where our culture is. Our culture looks out at the world that hasn't been impacted by Christianity, and they see evil. And yet, man wants to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So here's what he does. He actually says that it's Christianity that's caused most of the problems in the world, and what we need to do is move away from this Christian puritanical view and move towards something that's more like people who don't know Christ. So what do we do? We go backwards, back up the ladder. Let's condone homosexuality. Why? We're throwing off the restraints of the Christian influence that suppresses sin. Let's condone promiscuity. Let's condone malice, envy, slander. Really, we condone those things? Have you not read the Internet? Of course we condone those things. Now, hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. The question is, what restrains sin? And I'm admitting self-interest, societal interest, and Christian influence in culture restrains sin. But as followers of Christ, that cannot be our interest. Our interest is what eradicates sin. That has to be our interest. What eradicates sin? And the answer to that question goes back to the beginning of this whole deal. Go back to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from face to face, as it is written, the righteous shall live by Christian influence in a society. By faith. Here's where it gets difficult for us. If we're not careful, all we push for is the Christian influence to restrain sin, and we give up on the gospel that eradicates it. 
This is true in society, and it's true in our homes. With our children, are we more interested in just restraining their sin or eradicating it? How do you restrain it? Well, their own self-interest, your societal interest, which would be your family interest, the influence of Christian culture, even though they're not Christians, they live in the context of a Christian culture, if you're not careful, they learn how to conform to the Christian culture and never have that sin eradicated and think they're all right with God. Now let's make this personal. Every person in this room looks at this list, and you read this list, and a couple of things happen. Number one, you say, oh, I'm glad that's not me. I want you to hear something. If you have not come to Christ in repentance and faith, that is you. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but I don't live like that all the time. No, no, you don't. Why? Self-interest, societal interest, and Christian culture. You've experienced behavioral modification so that you have repressed this sin in order to fit into your family or to fit into your society, but it hasn't been eradicated because you've not been born again. You've been conformed but not transformed. Yeah, well, I thought Christians were supposed to be conformed. Yeah, Christians are conformed to the image of Christ after they've been transformed through justification. But before that, we're conformed to the pattern of this world, which is what we're told not to be in Romans chapter 12. So let me ask you something. You look at this, and your first response is, well, I'm glad that's not me, but here's what you need to ask yourself. It's not you, but is it not you because of self-interest? Do you not do these things because you don't want people to do them to you? Do you not do these things because of societal interest? Because you've grown up in a society that frowns upon these kinds of behaviors, and therefore you suppress them and you hold them back even though it's every bit of who you are? Is your sin restrained because of the influence of Christian culture? you grow up in a Christian family? you grow up in church? Do you know what the Word says and try really hard to live in accordance with what's there? Because, by God, you're going to be a good person. Or has it been eradicated? Because of the justifying and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. Which is it for you? Which is it for your children? One of the saddest things in ministry is to watch families tie their children up in knots. There's some people who get upset, and there's some people who get mad because we have an age at which we will baptize folks in this church. We don't baptize anybody before the age of 12, and usually, you know, it's not that young. But there's some people, they get all upset. Why? Because we're so used to being in situations and settings where just little, little old bitty folks 
five, six years old, as long as they can walk down the aisle and somebody ask them where Jesus is and they can say, in my heart, we dunk them and call them Christians. Never bother to ask about this sin issue. Is it self-interest? Is it societal interest? Is it the influence and peer pressure of Christian culture? Well, I don't know. Who can tell at that age? Exactly. That's why we wait. Well, here's the other response. Well, but but everybody sins, right? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Everybody sins. But let me read a couple of things for you. Let's go back to 1 John. We spent a lot of time in 1 John. We went through 1 John. Let me read a couple of other things for you out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Let's look at beginning at verse 5. Then I'll go back and talk about these verb tenses again and try to wrap this up in a way we can understand. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, no, we're not talking about sinless perfection. We do not believe in that. People who believe in sinless perfection are liars. I didn't say so. Again, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. John says they're liars if they believe in sinless perfection. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Go to chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. One of the things you find in John's epistle is this present tense verb. Because here's what people do. You go here, and some believers look at this list, and all of a sudden you go, oh, well, I've done that. I must be lost. The verb is in the present tense. And the ESV translates it appropriately. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, it's the present tense. It is linear, continuous action. It is what you do because it's who you are, not everyone who's ever done this before. Remember, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But do you practice it? Are you characterized by it? You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason for the Son of God Excuse me, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, 
And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What is your life characterized by? And why? Is your life characterized by this ongoing struggle to live up to societal norms and to live up to the peer pressure in Christianity? Or is it characterized by the transforming, life-giving work of Jesus Christ in your life as evidence of his justifying and sanctifying work of salvation? That's the question. Is your sin being restrained? Or is your sin being eradicated? And notice I said being eradicated. It's not all done with. That's why we can sing things like, Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Why? I'm tired of this. One of the marks a true follower of Christ. I'm tired of this. It's getting better as he sanctifies me and as I'm being conformed to the image of Christ, but I'm tired of this. I want full and total victory. So come, Lord Jesus, because that's when I get my full and total victory. Our sin is birth from our sin nature and the actuation of that in our practices. It is restrained by a number of things. By the way, that's not bad. It's good that sin is restrained. Amen? I'm glad men aren't as bad as they could be. Thank God for his common grace. Thank God for self-interest. Thank God for societal interest. Thank God for cultures that have been impacted by the gospel and as a result, not just general revelation, but also special revelation that influences the laws that restrain evil men. Praise God for that. But it is woefully insufficient for those of us who know Christ and know that the gospel is man's only ultimate hope for the eradication, not just the repression of sin. And that's what we're after. That's what we're after. If you're here today and you're all about behavioral modification, repent. Come to Christ because he's your only hope. If you're here today and all you ever do is restrain your children's sin and never point them to the one who can eradicate it, repent and call them to do the same. If you're here today and you're sick and tired of going through the motions and experiencing defeat after defeat after defeat because you're relying on your own power and your own strength, repent. And if you're here today and all you got out of this morning's message is, thank God I'm not like those publicans and sinners, 
repent because you have an overblown estimation of yourself. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are fallen men who live in a fallen culture. And that we sin the same reason all men sin. Because of character. Not because of mistakes, bad choices, because of evil, because of sin, because of unrighteousness, because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ who gives us hope and is our only hope for ultimate victory over sin and for temporal victory over sin. God, thank you that although we are not what we want to be, those of us who are in Christ are also not what we used to be. And it is to the praise of his glory. I pray for those under the sound of my voice who had their sin restrained by self-interest, society, even Christian culture for far too long, who desperately need to repent and believe and put their whole trust and whole hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ you call them to yourself today? I pray for the one who struggles with assurance, grant that that one might learn the simple yet glorious beauty of a Greek verb tense. And we rejoice in the fact that as believers, although our sins happen in the errors, they don't happen in the present. <laughs> Simple action, but not linear, ongoing, repeated action. And that's just because you're good. You're good. Grant us victory over sin. And grant us a passion to proclaim the gospel as our only hope and the only hope for those around us as well. Thank you for the privilege of living in a culture that has been influenced mightily by the gospel. And protect us from those who want nothing more than to ignore and eradicate that reality. By your mercy, would you protect us? These things we ask because we believe they're in accordance with the will and the nature and the authority of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. It's a language system. This is Ken Ham editor of the evolutionary expose for teens and adults called Glasshouse. 
week we're looking at the fingerprints of God, designs that are so amazing they cry out for a creator God. And the first is DNA. This molecule of heredity is in every one of your cells. DNA is what gives your body the instructions to build you. It's so complex and so compact that just a pinhead of DNA holds enough information to fill a stack of books that would reach to the moon 500 times. Yes, DNA is a complex language system. And languages don't arise by chance. They always come from a mind. And the mind behind the complexity of DNA? Well, that's the God of the Scriptures. Discover more evidence for our amazing creator when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find out more about our popular creation museum at AnswersRadio.com. An accuser of the brethren who goes by Brian claims he has proof our dear brother Justin Peters is a false teacher full of nonsense. In this video, we're going to hear from Justin Peters in a brief clip describe what he thinks is absolute proof that cessationism is true. Let's hear what he has to say. If all of the sign gifts were still operative in the church today, there would be no debate about it. There would be no debate about it. Uh, the very fact that there is a debate as to whether or not these signed gifts continue is inherent proof that they haven't. See, what he just basically said there was that the fact that there are people who disagree with me, that's proof in itself that I'm right. That's what Justin Peters just said. No, the point Justin made is very simple. If continuationism is true and the miraculous sign gifts for divine revelation are still regularly at work in the church today, then proving it should be really easy. You could end the debate by pointing to a genuine miracle like those seen in the book of Acts. Show one healing where a man lame from birth immediately received new legs and walked. Show one person who was raised the dead. Show one group of people miraculously speaking other languages they did not previously know. Show one modern prophet with a 100% track record of making miraculous predictions and they came true. It should be easy to produce these proofs, but you can't because the need for apostolic sign gifts has ceased. Instead, they debate about the continuation of miracles, which proves they don't have the proof. That was Justin's point, whom Brian slandered, calling him a false teacher. As 1 Corinthians 13:1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal when we understand the text. Arnold Schwarzenegger hit the news recently about the afterlife. He believes that death is the end. He won't be back, but he's dead wrong. I'll tell you why. I'd like to sit down face-to-face -face and ask him one question. We met once before, very briefly, and he shut me down even before I opened my mouth. I wouldn't let that happen this time because of this one question. The greatest mystery for this blind world is what happens after someone dies. They say that no one knows. And yet Arnold has solved this mystery. He's saying that he knows exactly what happens after we die. Hopefully. Yeah, there is a life after this, and we all know it's going to be different if there's a life after this. But it's not going to be like this. I'm not going to sit after we are dead. We're not going to sit here like this and do interviews and have a great time and have oh, laughs. Maybe the God they're smacking us every time we say something, a four-letter word or something like that. Right? The truth is, we're six feet under. 
So my question for him is this. Where do you get that information? It's no doubt just an opinion. In reality, he doesn't know what happens after we die. On the other hand, I have the ultimate evidence, the afterlife, and it has nothing to do with my opinion. Arnold, if I give you undeniable evidence on how to find everlasting life, I'm doing you the greatest of favors. I'm showing you how to overcome the grim reaper. And because of that, I'd ask that you hear me out on this. Let me see if I can stir your interest. In the Old Testament, God promised to destroy death, and in the New Testament, we're told how he did it. There are, of course, those who would say that's impossible. Because of that defeatist attitude, they'll be the ultimate losers. So whenever someone says to me, it can't be done, I heard it can be done. When they say, no, I heard yes. And when they say it's impossible, I heard it is possible. So just apply that positive attitude to this, the ultimate of issues. Because the Bible says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Before we look at how we can know that the Bible's promise of everlasting life is true, I have one other thing to say. Arnold, we're about the same age, so let me talk to you about something that I know concerns you. It's the transient nature of this life. Well, let me put it another way. We're both shrinking. Muscle is disappearing. It's not quite as evident for me as it is with you, but it's going like a deflated balloon. That's because everything in this life is slowly dying. And not only that, but the glory of this world fades with it. Ask this generation if they know the icons of the past. Ask them, who was Cary Grant? Or who was John Wayne? Elizabeth Taylor? Catherine Hepburn? Or Jimmy Stewart? It hasn't taken long for each of them to be forgotten. And you'll also be forgotten in time. How can we know that the Bible's offer of everlasting life is true? The answer is in what the Bible calls the power of the gospel. Arnold, if you obey it, God will give you a sudden thirst for righteousness. And that's a miracle for sin-loving sinners. He'll make you a brand new person on the inside. You'll be born again with a new heart and new desires. And that will be your own personal miracle. So, Mr. Schwarzenegger, soften your heart, humble yourself, and listen closely as I share the gospel with these four young people who have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So do you think there's life after death? I do. I don't. For me, the life never is done. Do you think heaven exists? Yes. I want to believe yes. When someone passes away, or you, you know, you want to believe that there's something after to not feel empty. I think that you probably have, like, an overwhelming feeling of, like, flashes of your body's natural reaction to dying and all your neurons firing. And I think that's what people might think the afterlife is. You're like the word probably in, which means you're not really sure of what you're saying is true. Yeah. Shouldn't you find out the truth? I don't want to die. Hard to say, but I believe in the Christian faith, and I believe that after we die, we're going to go to heaven. So have you been born again? Yeah. When did you last read your Bible? It's been a while. How long? At least a years. When did you last look at pornography? Last week. What does God think of that? He doesn't like that. Do you ever read the Bible? Uh, not really. Well, that's the instruction book. Hmm. It tells you there's a heaven and a hell. It tells you why you're alive, why you're going to die, and it tells you the answer to death. It tells you how to get everlasting life. Do you know that? No. Have you heard of the Titanic? Yes. What happened? The ship hit an iceberg, and it... 
sank and drowned. A ship not too far from it sent a message saying there were icebergs, and the radio operator sent back, shut up, because he was busy. Did you know that? I did not. What does it say about that guy if he says shut up when he's warned that there were icebergs? Carelessness. Yeah, he should have believed, shouldn't he? And if he had believed, he would have done something about it, taking the note to the captain. Plus, he could have lacked knowledge as to what an iceberg is. I mean, you can only see the top of it. No big deal. Do you think knowledge is important? Yeah, I believe so, I guess. Do you know it can save your life? Yeah, I also believe that. If you're in a hotel and it's burning, you're on the sixth floor, if you know where the exits are, you'll get out real quick because those things fill with smoke real quick. So you're kind of going blind. So if you know where to turn... How to get out, it can save your life. And knowledge can save you from hell and find you everlasting life. What do you think the Bible says on how to get everlasting life? Mm, no idea. I like that. I never read it before. You've got no knowledge. You need to get knowledge so you know how to be saved. Because death is your enemy. It's coming for you. You don't know when it's going to come. So I'm going to share with you why we die and what to do to find everlasting life. Do you know the Bible says the wages of sin is death? Have you ever heard that verse? Never. Yeah, the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal that's murdered multiple people. He says, you've earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. This is what you've earned. And sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row waiting to die. And your death will be proof to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So here's the big question. Do you think God is justified in giving you the death sentence? Are you that evil? Mm. That's a good question. So, ladies, I'm going to try and share with you that you're heading for an iceberg, that your life is in terrible danger, hoping you'll believe and that you'll take the knowledge I give you and you'll change your priorities. Mm. Do you think you're in terrible danger? No. It's going to happen to you after you die. Nothing. I'll just die. Okay. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. You've got to face an iceberg. It's God's justice on Judgment Day. Did you know that? I did. I grew up religious. I grew up in the Catholic Church and then the Christian Church. So you know there is a judgment day, is that right? Yeah. Are you an atheist at the moment? In between. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know what I believe. So let me share with you how you know God exists. When you look at a car, you know there was a car maker. When you look at a building, you know there was a builder. Mm-hmm. Anything made had a maker. And you look around at the genius of God's creative hands with flowers and birds and trees and puppies and kittens and seasons and fruits. All these things show us the genius of God's handiwork. So we intuitively, and using common sense, know that God exists. So the iceberg is Judgment Day. How are you going to do on Judgment Day? Do you think you're a good person? I am a great person. Morally, are you a good person? I believe so. And what about you? Morally, I think so, yeah. Okay, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, because that's the standard of justice on Judgment Day. How many lies have you told in your life? I've been a mom. So what do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. So what are you? A liar. Do you still think you're a good person? I believe so. You ever stolen something in your whole life, even if it's small? Yes. Ever used God's name in vain? That's Does that count? That's blasphemy. Then yeah. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. A little personal here. Jesus said, if you look with lust, sexual desire, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Yeah, and I don't believe that's like a sin. Okay, and what about you? Yeah. Ever hated someone? Yeah. He who hates his brother is a murderer. Have you hated someone? Definitely. Okay, here's a quick summation. Ladies, I'm not judging you, but here's the iceberg that's going to take you under. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemer, adulterate heart who's got murder in the heart. So if God judges you by those ten... Right now? (laughs) So if God judges you by those ten commandments on Judgment Day, are you going to be innocent or guilty? Guilty. I'd probably be guilty. What about you? Probably guilty. What did God do for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? God did something wonderful. 
idea. You actually know, but you, because you don't understand it, you don't value it. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross for the sin of the world? Yeah. Okay, most people know that, but they don't know this. And if you can get a grip of this, it'll change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus came and paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone else pays them. Well, say so you're out of here. Someone's paid your fine. Well, God can dismiss your case. He can take the death sentence off you. He can legally let you live forever all because Jesus paid that fine on the cross. And then he rose from the dead and find everlasting life according to the Bible. All you have to do is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. You'll never do that while you say you're a good person. And if you die in your sins and you're guilty, the Bible says you'll end up in hell. That horrifies me. I've just met you ladies I care about you. I don't want you to get out of hell. Do you believe what I'm saying? Belief is so important. If I told you that there was a landmine in front of you and you believed, you'd walk around it. If you didn't believe, you'd walk straight onto it. So don't disregard the power of belief. Oh, how we need to turn the ship around. So few in the contemporary church care about this dying world. Make it your aim to turn your local church towards the lost. One more thing. I love the fact that in the United States, the law says that if an emergency vehicle is coming, you must move over and let it have priority because someone's life may be at stake. Evangelism is an emergency vehicle, and every other activity within the local church should move over and let it have priority because people's lives are at stake. Oh, says Jesus loves everyone, whether they're gay, whether they have sex before marriage, whether they look lustfully, whether they lie, whether they sin. So I think that... I think you're right there. Let me just give an agreement with a qualification. The Bible says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not God's will that you end up in hell, but a judge may love a criminal, but he is bound by the laws of justice, and he will send him to prison if he's committed murder, even though he cares about him. So that's where I disagree is that I don't think people who are gay and who don't abide by the Ten Commandments and are not Christian or are not Catholic. I don't think those people are wicked. The Bible says no adulterer, no thief, no fornicator will inherit God's kingdom. And in that same list, it mentions homosexuals. So when I meet a fornicator or a thief, I'm going to say to them, hey, you've got to repent and put your faith in Christ to be forgiven. And when I meet a homosexual, I love them enough to say exactly the same thing. I'm not going to let them go to hell. I'm going to plead with them to turn from all sin. I love homosexuals. I speak to them all the time, and they listen to the gospel, which I'm grateful. Now, if you walked away from here and were killed or you died in your sleep tonight, that would grieve my heart or bring tears to my eyes because we really do care about you, and that's the basis of the warning. We're saying, iceberg ahead, please believe, don't say, shut up within your heart because this is so important. This is your eternity. Now, you've left because you've had enough, but please think about what we talked about. Will you do that? Yeah. And I give you a book that I've written? Sure. Can I give you a book of it? Sure. It's called Scientific Facts on the Bible, and it'll show you the Bible's credible because thousands of years ago it was packed from scientific facts that only God could have known. Do you think you'll read it? Yeah. I'll just read it. Interesting. Here are different points of view. Dear Lord, I say to you on this wonderful day, we give you the opportunity to realize some of our wrongdoings that I believe weren't so around before. 
People often say, I'd love you to talk to my unbelieving friend or family member. But why not send them this video? Just click on the share button and say, I'd love to know what you think of this. There's nothing offensive about that. Send it and then pray. Do it today. Order in the cosmos. This is Ken Ham inviting you to experience the heavens in our Creation Museum's planetarium. If you take a telescope and peer into outer space, you might notice that it's very orderly. There's nothing random out there. The heavenly bodies operate like clockwork, allowing astronomers to predict their movements with precision. But how is this possible if the universe is a result of a big bang? Our observations of the universe tell us things go from order to disorder, not from Big Bang to perfect order. And what have random processes ever created order anyway? The precise order of the heavens points to the one who created it, the all-powerful God of the Bible. He created the starry hosts just by speaking. There's so much more to discover about astronomy and God's design when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and read articles by Ken at AnswersRadio.com. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, some have argued this doesn't apply to everyone, only the disciples. God appoints messengers, but he does not appoint others to believe that message. So when Paul said God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace and revealed his son to me, or when God said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I appointed you a prophet to the nation, that's unique to them because they're messengers. But God doesn't choose anyone to receive the message against their will, right? Wrong. That's the only way anyone receives that message. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, they were chosen not only to hear the message, but believe it also. As Moses said to the Israelites, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Paul said to the Romans and Corinthians, you're only able to understand God's message when the Spirit of God has made you to understand. Consider this another way. On your own, you can't believe the gospel. The natural man cannot understand spiritual things. The mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God and is hostile toward God. If Romans 3.12 says no one does good, how can anyone choose to follow God, which would be a good thing? By God's wonderful, amazing grace, he chose us when we could not choose him. He absolutely does work against our will to receive his gospel. We would perish if he didn't. Praise God when we understand the text. In this segment in our study of Genesis, we're going to turn our attention to one of the most bizarre stories I think that we find anywhere in the Bible. And certainly uh, bizarre and strange and unusual in the context of Genesis. It's the story of what happens to, to Noah. The flood has subsided. When we think about Noah, we think about Noah and what? Bill Cosby. <laughs> the flood, right? And it's almost as if all Noah ever did was make a boat and go through a flood. But in Genesis 9, we read this very, very strange story. Let me take a moment to read it to you. Then Noah, this is after the flood, began farming 
and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him, and so he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, what's going on here? First of all, at the end of the text, we read what's called the patriarchal blessing, where the promises of God are transferred from father to son, but Noah has three sons. And who gets the blessing? Shem. Okay? And then the secondary blessing is given to Japheth. But instead of a minor portion or a third of the inheritance being distributed to Ham or to his son Canaan, instead, what does Noah do? He curses that generation and that part of his own family. And the narrative that we read tells us why Noah cursed Canaan. Very strange story. After Noah lands on shore on Ararat, he becomes a farmer, and he plants vineyards, and he grows grapes, and from the grapes he grows wine. He makes wine, but he overindulges in his own product, and he gets drunk, okay? And when he goes into his tent, he is blotto, to use the uh, colloquialism of our day. He is thinking drunk, so drunk that he's in there in a state of undress. We've seen people who are drunk that just don't know what they're doing, and they let themselves be exposed and whatever. He's in his tent, naked and drunk, and his youngest son comes in the tent and looks at his father's nakedness. Now, notice that the story is not that Ham looked at his drunkenness. He looks at his father's nakedness and comes back outside and tells his other brothers and said, it's like, you ought to see the old man. You won't believe it. He's in there naked as a jaybird, and he makes a spectacle of his own father. I'll just make a parenthetical statement here. I realize that there are Old Testament scholars who, when they look at the laws set down in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus and so on about nakedness, you're not allowed to uncover your father's nakedness or your mother's nakedness and all of that, that those can be sort of euphemisms for prohibitions against incest or that sort of thing. And some have taken the conclusion that what really happened here was that Ham committed incest with his father, sodomy. 
But the text doesn't say that. And I don't think it requires that interpretation. I say that parenthetically, and I just leave that for your consideration, that there are other interpretations to this passage. I'm going to take it at face value that what happens is the, the young man goes in there and comes out and jests about the fact that his father is naked and makes a spectacle about that. But the other two brothers then, instead of participating in the humiliation of their father, what do they do? They take a covering and they spread it between them and they walk backwards into the tent and cover their father's nakedness without looking at it. And in that act of covering their father's nakedness, they receive the patriarchal blessing of Noah. Now, what I'd like to suggest to you about that strange story is that contained in that story is nothing less than the gospel. The gospel is in that story. So, wait a minute. How in the world can the gospel be in the story? Well, you remember earlier in Genesis with the creation of woman and the institution of marriage, and how after we read that narrative that God makes the woman from the man so that, she, so that he declares, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and then sort of packed on in the last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis, like a dangling participle, concluding unscientific postscript, are those words without explanation. And the two, the husband and his wife, were naked and unashamed that originally man was made naked, without shame. And then when we read in chapter 3 about the fall of Adam and Eve, the first experience of sin and of guilt is what? An awareness of nakedness. When God comes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Adam and Eve are hiding. They have fled from the presence of God instead of rushing to him in delight. Now they're hiding. And God says, why are you hiding? What do they say? Because we are naked. God doesn't say it, but he, you know, you might have expected God to say, "Well, so what? I made you naked. Why should that cause you to run into the bushes? You were naked yesterday. You didn't have any problems when I came to see you." Instead, God says, "How did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree?" Notice, Adam and Eve didn't say, we hid because we were guilty. But somehow, this sensation of nakedness that was interwoven together with their guilt. Biblically, there is a close tie between a person's physical sense, his spiritual sense, his emotional sense. And the Bible uses the word naked to capture not just the physical, but also the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual. And we see it right there in Genesis 3, where the people had a, a spiritual problem. They sinned. They had an emotional problem. They felt guilty. 
how did they express it? In terms of an awareness of nakedness. Let me ask you this. What was the first act of redemption that God ever did for a fallen man? He clothed them. He didn't say, look, if you feel embarrassed because you're naked, because you sinned, too bad. The bed you make, the bed you sleep in, you're going to have to go like Cain and wander all over the world naked and, and, and embarrassed. And then God takes away the fig leaves and exposes them and makes them live in perpetual humiliation. No, the Lord God made clothes to cover the nakedness of his sinful people. He covered their embarrassment. This was indeed a cover-up, not a cover-up in a wicked sense, but in a merciful sense. He clothed his naked people. That is the gospel. And as God clothed his naked creatures, so Noah's sons hide the nakedness of their father. Their father's dignity was more important to them than their own fun and their own pride. I mean, the father should not have been naked. The father should not have been drunk. Noah, who was the righteous man that God spares in the flood, was a sinner in that tent. And his sons clothed him. Again, that is the gospel. Now, it's interesting, I think at least, and in fact, I wrote a whole chapter on it in this book, uh, If There's a God, Why Are There Atheists? on God and nakedness, where I try to examine the motif of nakedness from the Garden of Eden all the way through the scriptures, because that motif keeps popping up. It pops up in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it pops up up in the other biblical literature, Amos, where Amos makes predictions of the day of the Lord at the end of the age, the day of God's judgment, the day of God's wrath. What does... Amos say that in those days the enemies of God will be judged and sent running away naked. They will be left unclothed. To the ancient Greek, the worst thing they could think of as far as the torments of Hades, their concept of hell, was that the person who went to hell went there naked. In the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus rebukes those who come to arrest him, one of those from the outskirts, we were told, I believe, by Matthew, sort of just a tiny little reference, that he runs out into the night. How? The odds are that Jesus was crucified naked. I know we don't portray him that way in the art of the church, but it was customary in the ancient world to include in the punishment of public execution the total humiliation of being exposed physically, being naked. Because there is a sense in which the physical exposure is made more burdensome by the spiritual. Have you noticed 
culture moves, that there is a fascination with respect to nudity. People will pay money to see naked bodies, male or female. They'll pay them to see them, you know, in a, in a movie. They'll pay money to see them in a magazine. They'll pay money to see them live and on stage, right? Beg your pardon? Or museums. And I remember kids running to read National Geographic, not because they're interested in the geography, but because they have pictures of nude uh, aborigines in them, and kids laugh about that. So there is this strange interest in the nude human form. People are given to what is called exhibitionism, where a woman will get up on stage and take off all her clothes, or a man now. you got male dancers doing that sort of thing. But even that, when the act is finished, that striptease artist doesn't go walking down the street naked. And not only because there are laws against that, but at the same time as we have this attraction to nudity, there is also a built-in repulsion to it. As I've said before, if you want to invest your money in an item that's staple and has a future, invest in shower curtains and window blinds, okay? Because built into human nature is a desire to remain hidden to a certain degree. We do not expose ourselves physically for the world to gaze upon. People can't stand the thought of being reduced to, neg to nakedness. I uh, spoke on this in Florida a little while ago, and there were a lot of doctors there, and I said, don't forget that, doctors. It may be a commonplace dimension and necessary to the healing arts that you examine people without their clothes on, and you may do it every day, or your nurse may do it every day. But it's a rare individual that is comfortable in the presence of somebody like that if they are made to strip. The strip search in prison is one of the most humiliating dimensions of incarceration if you ask the prisoner. Fences are gone. He is reduced to this terrifying state of humility. That's one of the reasons why soldiers in the ancient world, when they would capture warriors, would strip them of their clothes. They became less aggressive, less terrifying, more subdued because they felt so vulnerable. So we shrink from having to be reduced to nakedness. Yet there's another side to it still, another facet. There is a sense in which all of us have a desire down in to find that even where once again we can be naked and unashamed. I mean, I've had people say to me, boy, at the end of the day, there's nothing better than to go in the room, close the door, pull the windshield, you know, take off all my clothes, <laughs> jump in the shower. Huh? There, I don't have to hide anything. I don't have to put on a good impression. I can be, for once in my life, in the privacy of my shower, naked and what? unashamed. But that's when you're alone. 
and nobody is looking at you. Is there any other place in life where you're free to become naked and unashamed where somebody else is there? The ultimate place is in marriage. And that's where we read about it in the Bible. That God, even though he expels Adam and Eve from Eden, and the marriage state is disrupted by sin, nevertheless, there's a sense figuratively and spiritually and physically where God has provided a place in this world where we can once again be naked and unashamed. And that's in marriage. But again, even that isn't merely a physical consideration. Concept of nakedness biblically is linked to being known. And if I live behind closed doors with a woman, that person has an opportunity to know me better than any human being in the world has a chance to get to know me. We live in the same house. We use the same shower. We sleep in the same bed. How much is hid? No, two people don't know each other perfectly. She can't get into my mind, and I can't get into her mind. But she knows me more intimately than any other person. That's why the marriage situation is so risky. Because if my marriage breaks up, I have to live with the fact, if my wife leaves me, that the person who knows me best on this planet has rejected me. There's an awful lot at stake when two people enter into that relationship. I was writing the other day about you know answering the age-old question that teenagers said, why do I have to get married? Why do I have to sign a paper to make it legal? Why can't we just have an agreement between two people and go out and live together? If you want to be foolish enough to do that, go ahead. But you are taking such an unbelievable risk of the state of your soul, of your mind, your emotions, and your body that I don't think you realize how much you're risking there. Because why do you sign that piece of paper? God has instituted marriage as a covenant. Biblically, there's no such thing as a private marriage covenant between two people. Why not? Why do covenants require witnesses? Because if I promise you that I will do something, and you promise me that you're going to do something, and then I break my promise, I violate you, what recourse do you have? It's the survival of the fittest. Same thing in business. Uh, you know, the employer says, hey, I don't want a contract. I'll just, you know, you just, I say, hey, I want it in writing. Why? Because you are a man, and all men are liars, and all people are covenant breakers. And you might break that promise, and I might get hurt by it. And if you do break that promise, I have a recourse to other authorities, to other people who can come in and help me get justice so that I have a safeguard. That piece of paper, that marriage vow, it makes it official. It puts you under the protection of the family, the church, the state, all kinds of people. And before I strip my body naked and my soul naked, I need to have some security that your promise is a serious promise. 
And I say to women, don't give your bodies and your souls away to a guy who makes a frivolous promise in the backseat of a car. You're exposing yourself to the worst kind of damage that you can imagine. God knows what he's doing. He, and yet, he said, here is an opportunity, a safe place for you to be naked again. And I'm going to protect that with all these different things. But that's just a human estate of nakedness. But what we need more than anything else is not just to be back in Eden where we can find a woman who can look at us while we're naked and not laugh, but that we can find a place where we can be naked before God without shame. Adam and Eve weren't embarrassed about their nakedness with each other. They weren't hiding from each other. They hid together from God, didn't they? It's God who made them embarrassed. You realize that there are thousands and thousands of people out there in this world who can't stand the thought of God looking at them. Can't stand it. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, you know, he, he hated the idea of God knowing all people. Because he said, that makes God a cosmic voyeur. It's like God is up in heaven peering through the keyhole and observing me like I'm a monkey in the zoo or a, or a picture in, a, in an art gallery. I'm reduced to an object. Do you like that people stare at you? They tell us in seminary that when we preach and when we speak that it is vitally important that we maintain eye contact with the congregation, with the people to whom we're speaking, right? What would happen if I was standing up in a pulpit on Sunday morning and Marie Swinney sitting there in the congregation and for 20 minutes I didn't take my eyes off Marie Swinney. And I'm talking about you've got to repent, you've got to do this. I'll tell you what, she could not sit there for 20 minutes under that. She would have to leave. Or she would become so hostile. There's no, people have measured it in societal groupings, the appropriate length of the meeting of the eyes of people on the street. And all somebody has to do to elicit a violent reaction from you, an action of anger, is to look at you too long. And your skin starts to crawl, and you start to get mad. Well, imagine that in the ultimate sense. That's what Sartre does. He's a philosopher. He says, my skin's crawling every minute. This God is out there looking at me. And most people don't want God to look at them. They want, people, they want God to overlook them. We're still looking for that bushes that will protect us from the gaze of God. Because under the gaze of God, what happens? Our shame is put out in front of us because we are guilty. And God knows it, and God sees it, and the psalmist says, where can I flee from it? If I go up to heaven, he's there. If I run down to Sheol, he's there. If I stand up, if I sit down, doesn't matter. There's nowhere I can go to flee from God's presence. And when the Bible talks about the last judgment, when all the time for repentance has been removed, Jesus and, and the psalmist and the, and the prophets say that the people will cry out to the hills saying, fall upon me. Why? And cover me. 
let the mountains fall down on top of me. Not because I want to have stones hitting me in the head, but I got to have something that'll protect me from the unveiled gaze of God. Why are people like that? Because we're guilty. How much time do we spend making ourselves physically look as attractive as we possibly can? Think about it. Because we don't want people to see our blemishes. We don't want people to see our shame. You know what the Bible, the word the Bible uses to describe the atonement of Jesus Christ? A covering. A covering. I can go into the presence of God, penance and contrition and all of that, but I am allowed to come into the presence of God now. Why? Because I'm covered. Isaiah says that your righteousness, the righteousness that you have achieved, the goodness that you have accrued in your life, is, if you add it all up, in the presence of God, like filthy rags. That's how much good it does you. Yet the Bible says the Christian is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So I don't have to go into the presence of God naked. I go into the presence of God covered. Just as Noah's sons covered the humiliating, embarrassing drunkenness and nakedness of their father, Christ covers my sin with the cloak of his righteousness. So that in Christ, I can be naked. And I'm ashamed. It's the gospel. A pastor told his congregation to speak prophecy to one another, but his definition of prophecy included visions of sharks and pirate ships. Lord, what would you want me to encourage Danny with? I'm going to quiet again. Trying to listen, and then automatically in my head, it's a picture of a ship, a pirate ship. There's like cannons on the pirate ship, and there's a shark chasing the pirate ship. Prophecy is not praying for people and then sharing whatever random stuff pops in your head. The Bible says if someone speaks in the name of the Lord and it doesn't come true, they've spoken presumptuously, and it isn't from God. What if we're only talking to ourselves? What if we're like, okay, Lord, will you show me somebody, and somebody pop in our head, and that's just us? Oh, no, you're going to encourage somebody, right? Like, why, why would that be this terrible thing? And, and then, what, what if I'm wrong? Those are the two big things that just haunt. What if we get it wrong and they stone me to death? I already said that's not the kind of prophecy we're making. So it's okay to lie to people and take the Lord's name in vain as long as it's positive and encouraging? On the contrary, the Bible says, speak the truth with your neighbor and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What the pastor is unintentionally arguing is that Scripture isn't sufficient. All the promises of God given in his word through his son Jesus are not enough, and we need personal revelations of sharks and pirate ships in order to encourage someone. The Bible is the prophetic word fully confirmed when we understand the text. Finely tuned. This is Ken Ham. 
editor of the powerful series of apologetic books, The New Ancestors. Earth is a very special place, uniquely suited for life. Consider that our sun is just the right color for plants to be able to turn sunlight into energy. And it's also just the right distance away from the sun for liquid water. Also, Earth's gravity, its tilt on its axis, its rotation period, ratio of gases in the atmosphere, and ozone levels are just right, more or less of any of these. And suddenly our planet wouldn't be overflowing with life like it is now. You know, evolutionists believe all this just happened as a result of the random processes of the Big Bang. But this finely tuned system doesn't point to random chance, but to an all-wise creator God. God's creation is astounding. Discover more about what he's made. Go to our website, AnswersRadio.com, and also visit our creation museum, AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember... By sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Thinking God's Thoughts This is Ken Ham inviting you to bring your family to our Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky. Over the past few years We've seen scientists studying sticky sea creatures to better engineer medical adhesives. And others are studying how bats fight create better robotic flyers. And they're even looking at gecko feet to engineer robots that can walk across any surface. When scientists copy nature in their designs, it's called biomimicry. But they aren't really copying nature. They're copying God's design. They're thinking God's thoughts after him. As the creation scientist Johannes Kepler once said, God's creation, it's so infinitely complex, we could spend a lifetime studying it. Subscribe to enjoy free email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and learn about our popular ARC encounter at AnswersRadio.com. 
Don't lie about, about it. Necessarily don't necessarily lie about, about it. Because your policy is lying about it. a complete lie. That's just a lie. 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 He's been telling a lot of whoppers tonight. What are we actually doing here? Two things were made shockingly clear at the Newsom DeSantis red state blue state debate. Number one, we're not having a culture war debating taxes or highways, shovel-ready jobs, or even, even some of the social issues. The culture is having a spiritual war. The issues we debate, life and marriage and sexuality, those are fruit issues. The root issue is God. How one understands God determines one's worldview, including politics, social issues, economics. Make no mistake about it. What we are witnessing in our culture will not be fixed by any politician, even a good one, if they're elected king forever. These are spiritual issues, and that means there's only one spiritual solution, the gospel. When someone gets saved, their thinking, their political views, they improve. Nothing short of salvation is going to bring a man like Gavin Newsom or any radical socialist Democrat to their senses. In other words, if we Christians want to see the country change, and we do, we need to be doing what we've always been commanded to do, make disciples. Lesson number two, we have lost our way on the life issue. We've lost the argument. In other words, we're arguing about the wrong thing. The debate in politics regarding life has turned into a question of weeks and not the question of life itself. The debate made that crystal clear. Do you support any restrictions at all on abortion, especially in months seven, eight, and nine? Past viability. Like, I understand why Sean asked this question. It's a gotcha question, uh, and I get it. It's to show how extreme liberals really are. But I would suggest asking this line of questioning actually hurts more than it helps. Dismembering a child at nine months, nine weeks, nine days, they're all acts of violence. When we focus on late term, we may have success outlawing those, but we will have seeded the ground on all abortions. And by the way, no shocker here, Gavin didn't get around to actually answering the question. I'm going to answer that question, but let's talk about the issue of abortion. Let's talk about the issue. You're going to answer it? I'm going to answer that question. I'll repeat that. But I think this is important, and it bears repeating. Well, there's a shocker. Now, notice what Newsom does to dodge answering Sean's question. He goes after, you guessed it, weeks. Ron DeSantis is signed the most extreme anti-abortion bills in America. He signed a bill banning any exceptions for rape and incest. And then he said it didn't go far enough and decided to sign a six-week ban before women even know they're pregnant, Ron. There it is again. That is why we have lost our way on the life issue. We no longer debate what is in the womb and what we're doing to it. We're merely debating when we can do it. If I were debating Governor Newsom. I would ask him, why is six weeks extreme? What distinguishes a six-week-old fetus from a six-month-old fetus? This is precisely when you will be able to jump on your sled, S-L-E-D, and ride it to pro-life victory. Because Gavin would have said one of four things. The fetus is 
small, yeah. So are a lot of people that we watch on TV, but we don't execute them. He would have likely said, it's not fully developed. Neither is a two-year-old, but we don't kill toddlers. Well, it's in the womb. What does location have to do with value? And finally, he would have said, well, it's dependent on the mother to live. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are dependent on equipment to stay alive. And we don't terminate them. If you remember your SLED sled, you'll move the debate from how many weeks before we can kill it to what is it? And the answer, of course, is it is a life. So in other words, I want to be clear on this. If a woman and her doctor, for any reason, not for any reason. No, 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 no. It's I'm extremely Should there this be? Is a, could I, I know where you guys are going, Sean. You're even uncomfortable with this whole issue. I, I, I watched her. I will this watch is her. where you guys have I'm to go asking. to cover for the Should, green, should there be abortion agenda, Ron? Should there be? Would you support a ban on abortion in seven, eighth, or ninth month for, if, the, if the mother's life is not in jeopardy? Extreme, extreme exception. People aren't going on and having abortion. Should it be illegal? That's something if devastating is happening. Should it be illegal? Be up to the mother and her doctor and her conscience. And it the answer is always, no restriction. I've already answered it. Okay, that was, that was good. But again, that misses the mark. The debate isn't about weeks. The debate is about what makes a life worth protecting. You had a 15-week rule in, in California. You reduced it to six. Uh, my question is this. Uh, what was your thinking behind it? Was it for religious reasons? Was it for uh, scientific reasons? What was the reason for you um, from going from 15 weeks to six weeks? Man, Silla. Sean just set it up on a tee for Governor DeSantis. The answer should be, while my religion informs me that intentional taking of an innocent human life is a sin and a crime, the science is clear fertilized egg is growing, and that means it is alive at conception, not as fully formed, not as independent, but it is still a living human being. Well, I believe in a culture of life. I think we're better off when everybody counts, when everybody has an opportunity to do well, uh, and that bill uh, attaches when there's a, a detectable heartbeat. Yeah, we, we want a culture of life, but he never explains why? The answer is because what is inside of the womb is a whole innocent human being. Instead, as swell of a job as he did overall, Governor DeSantis chose a random marker to determine the value of life, the heartbeat. First, there are people who can only live thanks to pacemakers. Second, heartbeat or brain waves are not what makes a living thing alive. If it is growing, it is a life, whether it has a heartbeat or brainwave or not. I think that what the position that we have from the modern left, including in California, is that they will take your tax dollars and they will fund abortion all the way to the moment of birth. He's wrong when he says the, the later terms are all because of this. 88% past 15 weeks are, in fact, elective. Uh, from, from the Florida data. He doesn't keep data there. But that is really extreme to take your tax dollars uh, and to do this all the way up uh, to the moment of birth. Is that like the fifth time we've seen it? The trap of making the debate not about should we abort, but when we should abort? Ugh, we, we 
lost the argument. He didn't answer your question about any type of protections at all uh, for a baby that has a beating heart, that can feel pain, that is viable. Viability is irrelevant. I know that sounds kind of like, viability is irrelevant. Well, we never walk into an ICU and pull the plug on someone who needs equipment to sustain their life. It doesn't matter if the fetus is viable. That is the wrong argument. The question is, what is it? The answer is, it's a whole innocent human being. When it comes to life, remember your sled. Don't fall into the when can we ditch. Instead, make the argument about one issue, one issue only. What can you ditch? And really, really want to make sure you win the pro-life argument. There is, again, one surefire way, regeneration. Preach to pro-aborts so that God converts them. That makes evangelism a very good deal, doesn't it? Not only does thinking on life improve, not only does thinking on politics improve, but most importantly, their afterlife improves. God gets way more glory by saving a pro-abort sinner, and bonus, babies' lives will be saved. What's the ceasefire that is needed for the culture wars? Evangelism and the gospel. Despite the overturning of Roe v. Wade, women continue to feel the pressure to have an abortion. Preborn Network Clinics continuing to provide wisdom and ultrasounds that ultimately lead to the saving of 80% of the babies whose mommies see them in their womb. How many ultrasounds could you provide? Please visit preborn.org slash wretched. Why don't they believe? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry with the faith-building streaming platform, Answers TV. All this week, we've been looking at amazing examples of God's design. Examples are everywhere from the fine-tuned heavens that declare God's glory to the tiniest cell that screams his praise. So why doesn't everyone believe? Well, the book of Romans gives us the answer. It says that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Yes, we're all without excuse for rejecting our creator. And yet people do. Not because of lack of evidence, but because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Discover more about the truth of God's Word and our video streaming service when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Going to go out with our outro. So thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.